What's going on, everybody? It's the City of the City podcast. I'm your host, Julian Mitchell. I'm here with 16-year NBA vet, Al Harrington. Um, and you have transitioned, too, now into being an entrepreneur, having your own line of CBD and cannabis and expanding that to a lot of different markets, which I definitely want to talk to you about as well. Um, taking it back, though, you came from an era you know, where a lot of stars were coming straight out of high school, going to the NBA. You went from high school to the NBA. So first, even talking about that, your perception of of the dream of being in the NBA as a high school student going to the pros to where it is now? Like, what was your thought process uh, internally? Well, for me, man, it was uh, it was like, it was fast. It was a learning curve for me that was pretty quick because right. uh, I didn't play basketball um, seriously, at least until I got into high school. Mm. So when I got to high school, you know, I was uh, very uncoordinated. Right, right. Um, you know, I wasn't really athletic. I couldn't dunk. I was 6'4 as a freshman, mm. couldn't dunk. Everybody else on the team, even guys that were six feet tall. And now, was this something where they just kind of pushed you into basketball then, or is that something you actually had a passion for? No, I got pushed into basketball after my Mm -hmm. freshman year. I played football, and uh, football was my passion. You know, after the football season was over, you know, I wanted to focus on getting stronger so that I could potentially play varsity as a sophomore. Mm -hmm. But uh, the JV football coach was the freshman basketball coach at my school. So he gave me a nickname, Big Daddy. So he was just like, Big Daddy, you playing basketball on my team this year? And I was like, nah, I'm cool, man. He's like, you playing? Like, he's very physical, intimidating, dude. Like, he mm-hmm. eat, like, bones and stuff. So, you know, he made me play on the freshman team. Um, started one game out of maybe 19 games. We actually went right. undefeated that year. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, I started to learn basketball. Uh, I got more and more comfortable with it. Actually, what happened was, to be honest, how I really got started to, like, turn the corner was that... Uh, this guy named Jay Syriac had actually come to, you know, get this kid named Kurt Hobson off my freshman team. He wanted Kurt, but he befriended me to get close to Kurt. Mm-hmm. So he was always talking to me, you know, having me relay messages back to Kurt and stuff. But at the same time, he'd be like, well, you can always come to the workouts if you want. Right. So I would go to the workouts and they would work with me individually. And I mean, they literally taught me how to run chewing gum, run how to, you know, learn how to run chewing gum and hold a basketball, then run chewing gum right. and dribble a basketball. So it was like in that every small incremental step that they taught me the game and you know as you know as I went on to high school I kept getting better and better and better right and at what point then was there did it click for you did you fall in love with it or become passionate about the game uh, I would say it was probably my junior year in high school um, so what happened was I went to I transferred schools to St. Patrick's High School and uh, when I got there uh, I was probably the third best big man mm-hmm. on the team Right. And uh, at that time, you know, I played with a point guard named Shane Holloway. And he was like one of the, he was the best point guard in the country at that time. Right. And I used to remember all the time, like he'd throw me the ball and if I dropped the ball and stuff like that, like he would go crazy. You know right. what I'm saying? So right. my sophomore year, I didn't have a lot of fun because I was like playing with him, you know, and always mm-hmm. being so under so much pressure. But you kind of needed that though at the time. I needed it. definitely made yeah. me better. It made me stronger mentally. You know right, what I'm right. saying? But then, you know, I went that summer, I went to uh, All-American camp in Adidas and my high school coach just barely got me in there, snuck me in, literally snuck me in. I didn't even stay right. on campus. And, uh, you know, I made the all-star team that year or right. whatever. And then after that, you know, I got ranked in the country. I started off maybe like 150 in the country. And I just kept climbing my way up to I ended up being player of the year in two years. Yeah, but then from, from that moment of now you've reached a level of, of prominence per se, right? So you're being looked at now to even go to the NBA, that transition from high school to now, boom, you know, like you're in the NBA and you're playing. What was that transition? Because you already had a learning curve, you know, from high school and being in Jersey and then, 
you know, coming to the league. So what was that that transition like? For well, you? once again, like I said, I was I was just young and naive, man. I didn't even really understand the magnitude of what I did. Like right. everybody always say, like, damn, you went to the NBA. What was that like? That had to be crazy. Yeah, it was crazy, but at the end of the day, like, you kind of thrown into the wolves, you know what I'm saying? So you don't really have too much time to sit and be in awe of what the situation is. You got to go, you know what I'm saying? And the good thing about it, too, that I went to a team that had a lot of veterans that taught me how to be a pro, you know what I'm saying? So a lot of people say you played a long career, but the reason why I played a long career is because of the foundation that was laid with the veteran players that I played with. Yeah, and who were some of the first relationships you made when you stepped into that locker room? You had a lot of... You know, great players on that team. So, who were some of the people? The first, you the first person was uh, Antonio Davis. He yeah. actually let me live with him. So okay. he had two twins, um, a boy and a girl, AJ and Kayla. They was three years old, I want to say, when I moved in with them. And I was like their big brother. Like, I literally sometimes I would have to watch them while him and his wife went out on dates. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm like, crazy. I'm in the league and I'm watching kids again. You know what That's I'm saying? Crazy. But, yeah. uh, you know, he's very incremental. I mean, I tell people all the one story how. Um, I had got my taxes for the first time, and I didn't know what they was, so I had got these books in the mail from a FedEx or whatever, and I looked through them or whatever, all these numbers and stuff, so I took it, and I put it in my closet. So, like, three weeks later, whatever, I come home one day from practice or whatever, and Antonio got those same books, but he, like, signing them and shit. So I'm like, yo, what is that? He's like, I'm paying my taxes. I was like, yo, I got some books just like that, like, a couple weeks ago. (laughs) He's like, well, you better sign them. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So, like, he taught me to to pay taxes. And now you have people like Antonio Davis. You have uh, Chris Muller, who's giving you the structure in terms of how to be a professional, how to be in the league, how to do these things, and even mature as a young man. But then now you do. You're thrown into the wolves and now you're in a new city too how did you get adjusted to being in a brand new place and getting familiar with with the space that you were and you were there multiple seasons so you had to really get familiar and get your foot in I don't know man like I said I think that it was easy just because I lived with them so it was almost the same structure I had from Jersey you know what I'm saying I had like they were almost like my parents you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? So, you know, I had not only those guys, but all the other guys, you know. So I, I, I hung out with the Jalen Roses, Dale Davises. Mm-hmm. So they made it easy, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, Dale and Jalen had a barbershop. So, you know, they introduced me to the dudes at the barbershop. They was more around my age, you know what I'm but saying? But I mean, too, being in Indiana, that's not necessarily the sexiest city people want to no, talk about and kick it at, you know what I'm saying? So not how was it with those guys being in the city, getting familiar with the city? Like, I mean, you know, for like? it to be the NBA, it sucked. You know what I'm saying? Because you want to go somewhere you think you can party and all that. It's like Indiana, it ain't none of that. But, you know, you learn that you, you know, you have a good time on the road. You know what I'm saying? If you yeah. can, you know, and that you just, you know, do it responsibly or whatever. But, uh, yeah, Indiana was definitely, I mean, it's changed a lot. Like the way from, you know, it's been 20 years now since, you know, when I first went there or whatever. Like this is 20 years this year. So it's changed a lot. But like when I first was there, like downtown was like three buildings. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it was tough coming from Jersey going to Indiana. Yeah, and you built a lot of camaraderie, obviously. That team was was very tight, and the people who played on that team, the camaraderie that you guys had was very evident for people who saw you. So how was building that? You know, like getting to a point where now you're adjusted, right. and you're a veteran now, and now you're a part of this core group of right. people. So no, I just think when you, when you go to a good team with a lot of good guys, and they, when they got a lot of good core, you know, core uh you know, ways that they, the way they handle themselves, professionalism and stuff like that, you kind of just fall in line, you know what I'm saying? Because if you don't, you stick out, you know what I'm saying? And especially, I played for Larry Bird my first two years, and like, Mm -hmm. you know, I got off to a bad start with him because, you know, after I got drafted, I was late for my press conference, I had missed Mm -hmm. my flight, or whatever, so like, I never got, I never had a real good relationship with him because of that, he held that against me the whole two years that he coached me, you know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? But at the end of the day, like I said, it taught me responsibility, you know what I'm saying? 
level was late again after that. You know what I'm saying? And, yeah. And, you know, so, you know, that just kind of show you, like, the way the team structure was. And, I mean, even the guy said something to me about it. You know what I'm saying? Like, damn, bro, are you going to be late for your first? You know what I'm saying? I'm not thinking. Because I'm coming from high school. You know what I'm saying? I'm not thinking right. that it's that big of a deal. You know what I'm saying? But, yeah. you know, when you deal with professionals, everything is structured. You know what I'm saying? You got you to respect that. Right. And then you have this moment where you built that team. And that team was very successful, too. And you guys went on runs and had this camaraderie. But then you leave Indiana. So how hard was that for you making that? that shift the first time you had to leave? I mean, it wasn't hard for me because, you know, I wanted to see if I could, you know, I wanted to start. You know what I'm saying? Right, and, right. You know, Indiana had, like, this vision of me, like, being, like, the ultimate six-man, like, my whole career. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the end of the day, like, we all lived to have our name called. You know what I'm saying? Right. When the game first start. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I ventured off and, you know, I went to Atlanta. Then, you know, I had personal success, but my team's success was nothing. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. First year we won 13 games. I think the next year we won like 21. You know what yeah. I'm saying? And when I left Indiana that year, we had won 61 games. So that was a transition for me, too, because it was the first time I ever lost, like, at mm-hmm. any level. Because in high school, we won. We played at a high level. We always won. You know what I'm saying? Like I said, my freshman year, we went undefeated. Then right. I go into Indiana, a team that's a championship caliber team. We go to the playoffs every single year. Exactly, yeah. And then I go to Atlanta, and we win 13 games. So it was like culture shock for me. And uh, now, how do you handle that? Like, how did you make sense of that and actually stay focused to get to get through something like that? Man, because you know, at the end of the day, like you know, my 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 personality is always the way I the way I approached every year, every summer was that it's always a young guy in the draft coming to take my job. You know, mm-hmm. so no matter what kind of success we was having on the court, you know what I'm saying, I always knew that I had to make sure I kept bringing it every single night, you know? Yeah. So that's the reason why, like, I always stayed on top of my game because I was always afraid of somebody taking my spot. Now, even though you switched teams, you built these relationships. So what role did the veterans and the people who you built these strong relationships with in Indiana play as you moved on and even went to another team and how did you keep those relationships together yeah well i mean it's not really relationships it's just like i said those core values that they taught me you know what i'm saying so you know when i go to atlanta i think i was the third oldest player on the team and i was 24 years old wow like so we was like a, we was babies we was the youngest team in nba history you know what i mean so i got all these young kids that's 18 years old looking up at me calling me og and I'm 24, my sixth year in the league, you know right, what I'm saying? Right. So the only thing I could give them was like a lot of the stuff that those guys taught me and I had to lead by example, you know what I'm saying? So, mm-hmm. you know, I always try to be the first guy in there, the last guy to leave and just try to show them like, this is how you have success, this is how you stay around the league because right. that's what those guys showed me. And it sounds like even when you talked about it in high school, being pushed into playing basketball, being thrown into the league and these things, you, you've adjusted, was that a tough, adjustment now being the leader and being one of the oldest on the team coming from being a young dude or was that something you just kind of took on yeah that's something I kind of took on you know sometimes you think about like when you lead guys that don't know anything it's kind of easy you know what I'm saying you know I think it's a little tougher when you know you take like a guy like LeBron when he always has to lead veterans you know what I'm saying he's Mm -hmm. leading guys that have been stars and different things like that and now they're on the back side of their career and they have to believe in him you know what I'm saying so I feel like I kind of had that part of it that transition was pretty easy just because no matter what I told them whether it was good or bad they would believe it (laughs) 
Right. And then even going from Atlanta, then moving on from there, was that something where you were ready and prepared for it? Like the same way you said, I want to go to Atlanta to start. Right. When you move on from there, was that something that you were still prepared for thinking about or it was more unexpected and you had to No, you, had to you know, adjust? so, you know, obviously, like I said, we sucked in Atlanta, so I definitely didn't want to go back there. You know what I'm saying? Right, so I was right. trying to figure out what was the best situation. And Indiana came back knocking, so it was somewhere I was super familiar with. So it was easy for me to go back there. Everybody, right. all the same players was there for the most part. You know what I'm saying? So it was just like I took a two-year hiatus and I came right back. And fit in. But this time when I came back, I was actually a starter. You right. know what I'm saying? So, um, you know, I did. Yeah, back. I did. Yeah. I, I proved that, you know, I was a starter caliber player or whatever. But, you know, that team, we didn't have the type of success we had that, right. I, you know, before I had left. Now, how is that to balancing between wanting to have team success and also challenging yourself and wanting to have you know wanting to excel like you say wanting to start wanting to be on a championship caliber team a lot of that is why players may move around as we see now in the NBA to different teams or make adjustments like how is trying to balance that between saying yo I'm a team player I'm gonna stick it out here versus I have my own goals I want to accomplish like how is that that balance well I mean for me I learned that I left Atlanta you know what I'm saying? Because I went to Atlanta and I averaged 20 points and teams act like it didn't mean anything because we didn't win. Mm. So I learned at that time how important team success is to your overall, the way they overall look at you. You right. know what I'm saying? So, you know, after that, I realized that my individual stats didn't really mean as much mm. as much as the team success and being a part of it, being some type of a positive. And the reason why the team is winning, that's how you really create your true value. Right. So when doing that and you moved on, you said you came back to Indiana now. So then what was that like then coming back to that team? Like I said, it was easy because I right. knew everybody there. You know what I'm saying? I think that uh, the tougher part was actually leaving again than that same season that I just got back. You know what I mean? Because when I came back that time, I was willing to play six men. You know what I'm saying? I was right. like, whatever. I just want to stay here. I know I can win here. I'm familiar. My family's here. It was just like, you know, whatever. I got my fix by leaving. Now I'm ready to be back, but we ended up getting traded to Golden State that same year. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, you know, the rest is history. We had great success there, you know what I'm saying, for a two-year right. span as well. What's that experience like? Because people see players get moved around and traded all the time, and I don't think people, if you don't play the game or you're not in it, you just see, oh, these four players are going here for these players. You don't right. really know what goes into it. What's that really like? And what goes through your mind when you get that phone call? It's like you're getting traded. You're not doing it the way you want to do yeah. it. You actually. It's tough because, I mean, I've only been traded one time in the season. I've mm-hmm. only been traded twice, but I've only been traded one time twice in the season. And, you know, for that one, it was, it was surprising because, you know, when I came back, you know, I signed a four-year deal. Everybody was excited to have me back. You know, Larry Bird was kind of working as a consultant. Donnie Walsh was still a GM. And y'all cool at this time? Yeah, we was, we was definitely cool at this time because he was okay. my coach right. or whatever. But, um, you know, I had just, like, built, I had just bought a house and gutted it and, like, renovated the inside and, like, customized it, like, two TVs in my bedrooms. It was, like, I went over the Crazy top. Yeah. And, like, I was only living in it for, like, four days. And like the fifth day I was living in the house is when I got traded. You know right. what I'm saying? So that like, it crushed me. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying like, I just did all this to this house and I got to mm-hmm. leave. You know what I'm saying? But it's tough because like I said, you, you pretty much, they give you like 48 hours to pick up your life and roll. 
You know what I'm right. saying? And then you gotta either have family or whatever that can come and do all the packing for you and all that type of stuff. So being right. traded in season is tough. Now, now that's something that obviously is is can be devastating at times, or something where you say it could be unexpected and, and be very uncomfortable. But what's the the lesson in that? Like when you when you've experienced that or seen that, what does that teach you? And and how do you take from that something that's actually just a, you just learn the business of basketball. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you look at it, there's two ways you can look at it. Like, you know, you leave in a situation where you wasn't wanted or you go into a situation where you was wanted. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, right. a, that's your positive or negative spin on it. But, uh, you know, it's just, it's just part of it. And, you know, when, it's, when, it's, when they make the decision, you just got to go with it. You know what I'm saying? They pick up your contract. You want to be paid, so you got to go and be professional. Yeah. What was your favorite city to play in or what was what was some memories or some moments that you had that always stick with you now my favorite city was definitely new york because i grew up a Knicks fan you know what i'm saying i was a right. jordan fan but like whenever he played against the knicks i was you know i was rooting for the knicks and like my mother everybody knicks fan so when i was able to play for the knicks it was like a dream come true for me you know what i'm saying yeah. like I, I tell people all the time like before my biggest fear in the garden was to be booed you know what I'm saying? Because right. I seen them give it to people. You know what I'm saying? And I can't say for the two years I was here, I never got booed once. You know what I'm saying? I always bought it. I always, you know, played pretty solid here. Yeah, and you having 16 years in the league is more than a lot of people dream to play. And it's something where I feel like you've been able to be on specific teams, like you said, that have gone far. And you've been able to develop yourself. So now stepping out and looking back too, like how would you explain or qualify what that run and experience in, in the NBA altogether meant to you or, or felt like looking back? I mean, the one thing I can't say, it, it, was, a, it, was, a, it was fast. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like 16 years went by fast. Right. You know what I mean? When I look back at it, you know. But, uh, you know, it was, it was impactful for me. You know what I'm saying? When I look at, like, what basketball did for me and my family, like, it changed my family life. You know what I'm saying? It allowed us to see the world have a lot of experience that I never even dreamed of. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. I really wasn't a little kid dreaming about playing in the NBA or going to Africa or going to all the places that I've actually been. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. So it's just amazing, like, you know, the things that basketball has allowed me to do. And I think, too, a lot of people, when they see, you know, the recent LeBron recently opening the school, you really see, and people have done it before, but seeing somebody like LeBron, you see basketball really as a vehicle, or as a tool to do so many, you know, other things for you. Is, did it get to a point where now, of course, you have the cannabis and you're doing other things and you've traveled so much where basketball really was that for you? Like, right. you love to play, but it became something that allowed you to just have access right. to so many other things. I think, things. like I said, it's just go from experiences because I think as you get older, you start thinking about legacy. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, like, for me, like, I don't want to just be known as a dude that played basketball because right. I'm much more than that. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? I think that's what LeBron is on. He's like, yo, at the end of the day, yeah, I may be the greatest basketball player in the world, but I'm the, one of the greatest human beings as well. Right. And, you know, we're always fighting that stigma that we're just athletes. You know what I'm saying? And we just mm -hmm. make your money and be quiet and don't do nothing. You know what I'm yeah. saying? But now nah, we more than that. You know what I'm saying? We're entrepreneurs. We're, we're you know, we're, we're parents. You know what I'm saying? With brothers, mm -hmm. sisters, you know, sons. And, you know, we do a lot of good. You know what I'm saying? So right. it's good to see that, you know, obviously LeBron just has a totally different platform because you're right. Like Jalen Rose has been done that. Yeah. You know, Puffy's done it. You know, a lot of different people have created schools. But when you see somebody of his magnitude, you know, it's just really amazing because I feel like if anything is more inspiring to other athletes coming behind him right. to do the same thing. Right.
And for you too, like what are some of the other ventures you've gotten involved in outside of basketball? And then where did this passion for cannabis and and all of that, uh, you know, stem well, from? I've done you? a little bit of everything: real estate, cars. Uh, and is that something too? I'm tech. sure you had veteran players. They're encouraging you too, like, yo, you need to go do other things outside of basketball right. and get involved in other things. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, you gotta you gotta invest. You know what I'm saying? At the end of the day, like, yeah, we make a nice amount of money, but you want your money to keep making money. You know what I'm saying? Right, so right. you gotta be smart, try to meet the right people. It's all about who you meet, you know what I'm saying, and the mm-hmm. deals that you get put in. So, you know, just trying to gain, find that trust of people is really tough, you know what I'm right. saying? But like for cannabis, like, you know, I grew up, like I said, you know, I grew up in Jersey where like, you know, I was taught to believe that cannabis was a gateway drug, you know? So I mm-hmm. was taught that like, if I smoke weed, I was gonna smoke crack. And I seen crackheads in the alleys, you know what I'm saying? So I know I never wanted to be that guy, you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Then even in eighth grade, I remember one day they did a raid at my school and they arrested like 15 kids that had like, you know, weed in their lockers and stuff like that. Right. So it was something I didn't want to be a part of. So like the first time I saw weed, not that I saw weed, you know, in high school I had some players that smoked or whatever, but when I got to the NBA and I saw like some of my teammates smoking and like they were some of the best players on the team, right. it, it really threw me. I'm like, wow, they really can operate and go out here and kill on a nightly basis and they use cannabis all the time, you know what I'm right. saying? And then I looked at it, also I was like, it's two different types of teammates because you know, you had the smokers and then the guys that party. So, you know, the smokers, they smoke, they sit, play video games and chill, right? The drinkers, strip club, club, blah, blah, blah. The next day we go to shoot around, the smokers is getting their work in, ready to play that night. The drinkers, they moving slow. You know what I'm saying? They hung over, you know what I'm saying? They don't want to be there, they're not right. inspired. Right. So that was the first time I was like, damn, okay, like we really isn't that bad, but I still didn't think it was for me because I still had that thing like, okay, they just strong right, enough that right. they not crackheads. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right, right. So uh, I signed it with the Denver Nuggets, and when I got there, you know, I was always reading the newspaper every morning or whatever, that's part of my thing. I get donuts, orange juice in my newspaper, and I make sure the rookies had it on my chair every day. And, you know, every time I look at the newspaper, it was always something in there about cannabis. You know what I'm saying? So I would always just read, you know, read the little articles and stuff. And um, my grandmother had come to see me play that year or whatever. So when she got there, she had put this pill box up in my kitchen and she started popping all these things and just started taking all these pills. So, you know, I walked up, so I'm like, I'm like, damn, grandma, why are you taking all that medication? And she started telling me about all the stuff she was dealing with. She like, I got diabetes, high blood, high blood pressure, glaucoma, this, that, and the third. Yeah. So when she said glaucoma, I was like, well, grandma, I was just reading the newspaper that uh, cannabis helps with glaucoma. She's like, what is, uh, what is cannabis? So this is when you're realizing it's healing. It actually I'm, has positive. I'm just re- I don't realize. I'm just reading. So right, I don't right. know. I've never right. seen it help anybody. I'm just reading it. You understand what I'm saying? So when she tells me she's suffering from glaucoma, I'm telling her two days ago I read something about it. So I'm telling her about cannabis, and she's like, what's cannabis? And I said, it's weed, marijuana. Right. So she was like, reefer? She's like, boy, I ain't smoking no reefer. You better get out of my face. <laughs> She's like, right. reefer ruins your grandfather's life, ruins your uncle's lives. Look at talking about my aunt. So, you know, name them by right. name. Like, look, look how crazy she is smoking that reefer. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, whatever, grandma. So the next day I came home and I had a game. And she was sitting in my kitchen, and this time her face was in her hands. And when I walked in, I'm like, what's up, Grandma? And she's like squinting, and she was just like, uh, is that you, baby doll? She called me baby doll. She's like, my eyes hurt so, da- hurt so bad today, I could barely see. And I said, so you telling me you're taking all that medication and like you still can't see? Like you still in pain? And she was like, it's hit or miss. So I said, well, Grandma, listen, why don't we just try the cannabis? You know what I'm saying? And at the end of the day, like I had no idea what was going to work. And on the, on the ignorant side of me, I kind of wanted to see my grandma high. 
You know what I'm saying? I ain't gonna front. Of course. Yeah. So I'm like, so I'm like, Grandma, why don't you just try it? Whatever. And we talked about it. She was like, you know what? I'm in so much pain today. I'll try anything. So I called my boy who had a card or whatever. I was like, yo, go to the dispensary and ask him for something for glaucoma. So he brought back Vietnam Kush. I'll never forget what it was. Brought it back. We vaporized it for her. I took it in my garage and she started smoking it or whatever, right? right. But she smoked it like she smoked. Like she's not <laughs> coughing or nothing. I'm looking at her I'm like, am I sure you won't smoke? Smoker, so she's yeah. like, boy, I for smoked sure. a cigarette one time when I was 16 or whatever. So took it downstairs. I went upstairs and took my nap. So woke up an hour and a half later. And before I jumped in the shower, I said, I'm just going to make sure she all right. Right, right. So I go downstairs and uh, I knock on the door. And when I poke my head through the door, you know, she was looking down. And uh, I said, Grandma, are you okay? And she turned around and she was crying tears. And she said, I'm healed. She said, you know, I haven't been able to read the words of my Bible in over three years. Wow. So like, you know, she made me start tearing up. So I went in the room and I hugged her or whatever. And she was just like, I can't believe it. She was like, everything is just so bright. She's like, I can see it. Everything is so clear. Blah, that's blah, blah, amazing. Blah. Yeah. And uh, that's when it changed the way I looked at it. That's the first time I seen it help somebody. So I started right. reading up on it, doing my little investigations and due diligence on cannabis. Right. And uh, it pretty much inspired me to invest in 2011. And, you know, mm. when I first invested, what we did was all the flour that we grew was only for HIV and cancer patients. So then from that experience, how did it evolve into what you have right now? You have Viola, you have so many other ventures in different markets. Like, what was the process of, of that? Yeah, so like, I mean, to be honest, I got in, like, I'm, I had no idea, like, I would be at this point, you know what I'm saying, with this company, you know? Um, literally, like, we were caregivers, and I thought the caregiver model was something that was just gonna, like, you know, obviously allow us to help people, but just, like, put some money in our pocket. You know right, what I'm right. saying? Like, I had no idea that we was gonna end up, you know, being a national brand and going to all these different states, you right. know what I'm saying? But pretty much what happened, we were caregivers until 2013. And in 2014, um, you know, they killed the caregiver model. And in order for you to have a facility, you needed to uh, obviously be, be permitted. Um, right. You had to get a license and yeah. you had to establish some type of a company, you know? Mm -hmm. So for us, you know, we always held true to, you know, who we were and why we started, you know what I'm saying? And we decided to name the company Viola, which is my grandmother's name, Right. you know what I'm it's saying? Amazing, yeah. And, you know, the reason why we actually became an extract company instead of just selling straight flour was because um, the one issue my grandmother was having was that, you know, like I always tell people she's like the backbone of not only our family, but like her church. So mm -hmm. she was always nervous that when people came to her house, her house smelled like weed. You know right, what I'm saying? Right, right. Yeah. So she stopped taking it. So my grandma, I mean, so my aunts would call me and be like, yo, ma, not taking it, blah, 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 blah. She think everybody, she think our whole house, she think the front of the house smell like weed, whatever. Right. So I was just paradigm. thinking, I had, to, I had to come up with a way to be able to medicate her without everybody knowing, being discreet right. about it. And that pretty much, you know, uh, put me into the extract business because, you know, obviously when you extract the plant down until you, you know, you turn the THC into liquid form, at that point you can infuse it in anything, wine, right. uh, edibles, uh, vapes, anything like that. And, you know, you can actually medicate without anyone knowing. And, you know, I banked on that being, you know, the future of cannabis. Right. And then now you've been, you're in four different markets now. So... Uh, you know, describe how it's evolved and, and where it is right now and, and where you're looking to take it from this point. Yeah, so what we did was, man, you know, it took us, you know, it took us 
two and a half years before we really dialed in our processes and right. you know was able to make SOPs and different things like that where we know exactly how we wanted to operate, you know, our secret sauces and different things like that. So once we did that, you know, being that I'm in the NBA and, you know, at that time I was slowly coming out the closet as being an entrepreneur, it was a lot of different opportunities being thrown at me. You know right. what I'm saying? So I looked at some of them, a lot of them, you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't comfortable with. So, you know, I'm one of those people, if I see something that makes a lot of sense, you know, and I could do it myself, I'll do it myself. Right. So what we did was, you know, we went to uh, Michigan, you know, we got a 50,000 square foot building there that, uh, you know, the city, the city of Detroit is one of the, is one of the few cities in the state of Michigan that allow, actually allow vertical integration. Yeah. So there we'll be able to cultivate, manufacture, and retail out of that location. Very so important. So we're super excited about that. That should be coming online, uh, you know, first quarter, you know, 2019. Um, I also went to Oregon and saw another opportunity there where I actually bought a 40-acre farm. So I'm actually a farmer. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I went out Which there. Which is dope. It was, yeah, crazy yeah. for a dirty yeah. dude from Jersey. But, uh, you know, I do farming out in Oregon, 40-acre farm there. Um, you know, we did a, a 40,000 square foot outdoor grow, which is, like, absolutely beautiful. Um, we we made really high-quality cannabis out there. And uh, in California, what I chose to do there, instead of competing with a lot of these mega grows that are being built and stuff like that, what I did was I partnered with some where, you know, they grow my strains, uh, you know, through my SOPs. Um, they do the manufacturing, you know, through my SOPs. And pretty much all I have to do is worry about is packaging and marketing and branding the product. You know right. what I'm saying? And, you know, at the end of the day, like, my goal is to create a lifestyle brand around cannabis. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? I, I don't think... I haven't seen anybody do it at a high level, and I feel like, why not myself? You know what I'm saying? When I think about, you know, just the relationships that I have, um, the fact that, you know, I am a minority, I'm black, and, you know, I just feel like there's a culture about cannabis as well, because at the end of the day, like the black market is a whatever, a $25 billion industry or something crazy like that. And 85% of all drug arrests is, you know, especially, right. you know, uh, it's cannabis related, for, especially for minorities mm -hmm. and black people. So I feel like we know how to sell cannabis. <laughs> you know yeah, what I'm saying? Absolutely. We know how to do it. We know how to make it cool. And, you know, so, um, you know, that's something that, you know, is really, you know, important to us and, you know, important for me is, you know, giving other minorities and black people an opportunity to be in the space. Yeah, absolutely. So as we wrap it up, let people know where they can find it, where they can get it or, or where they can find you. Yeah. So, you know, in the states that we're in, like I said, we're in Colorado, we're in, um, well, we will be in Michigan right now, right. but we're operating in Colorado right now, Michigan, excuse me, Oregon and California. Okay. Michigan is coming online. Um, we're applying for an application uh, in, in New Jersey. Okay. Where I'm from. Uh, we just did a deal in Jamaica. So we have, right. our, you know, our genetics is out there growing right now. So Absolutely. we'll be on shelves in Jamaica uh, first quarter 2019 as well. And then I'm working on a partnership in Canada as well. So Absolutely. we're becoming an international brand as well. Absolutely. And as we wrap it up to uh, words also, you coming from a teenager to where you are now going through the league as long as you have to being an entrepreneur, you're still a young dude, you know, and you have overcome a lot of statistics or odds that I feel like a lot of people would look at and say, yo, he's really an example. He's inspiring. So for young people who are in those positions, like what would be some of your words to them or to yourself if you look back at the one who was getting pushed into basketball right, right. to where you are now? I mean, my biggest thing is just find something you're passionate about and whether it makes a lot of money or not, man, like do it because that's what's mm -hmm. going to bring you ultimate happiness. You Absolutely. know what I'm saying? You got to do something that you love. And, uh, you know, for me, like, you know, the much, as much as I love basketball, like, I'm so surprised that there's times when I can, like, be cool and not hoop. 
You know what I'm right. saying? But cannabis is kind of, not kind of, it has fulfilled that role. And I mm-hmm. tell you all the time, like, you know, when I was, I played 16 years, but my goal was to play 20, right? Mm-hmm. My knee is what stopped me from continuing to play. But, um, you know, I probably could have fought and did the training camp thing, made the team, you right. know, but at the end of the day, I had cannabis. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, it, has, it has so much of my interest you know what I'm saying? That it was easy for me to put the basketball down. And it's hard for people to find that because, you know, I have, you know, friends, ex players that are still trying to find. They've been done three, four, five, six, seven years and right. they still can't find their way. So, you know, I would just tell people just to, you know, just, you know, find something you're passionate about and just go right. for it. You know what I'm saying? And it's, it's legal in California and Oregon and places now. How many players in a league would you say by percentage? smoke marijuana or, or use cannabis? I would say at least 80% mm-hmm. in some shape, form, or fashion. Even, right. if, even if they just try it. Maybe not, they may not use it every day, but you know, when they're hanging out with their girl at the beach, they'll take an edible. You know right. what I'm saying? I, I firmly believe that most, you know what I'm saying? And uh, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Just the way we can sit here and drink wine like we are now, you mm-hmm. should be able to consume cannabis. Absolutely. Like how do, you see the NBA or, or or institutions like that getting over the stigma of marijuana and and using the, the drug. I think that uh, it's not a, it's not going to be until it's federally legal, mm-hmm. until I think leagues really let their guard down and allow players to use cannabis. The issue that we the issue that we have is just we live in a time of like ignorance, and, and I mean it's at such a high level because of social media. You right. know what I'm saying? So opinions get formed from people that aren't even real people a lot of times, Literally you know what I'm saying? and things like that. You know yeah. what I mean? So at the, the end of the day, like I look at it like, you know, if the NBA tomorrow said, you know what, we're going to allow cannabis use, right? The first game, Steph Curry go out and go 0 for 8 from 3. They're going to be like, I wonder if he was in the base smoking the night before that. And <laughs> right, then it's right. going to go viral. You right, know what I'm right. saying? So yeah. it's the stuff, it's the perception that the leagues are trying to protect themselves against. And I, I, I get it. You know what I'm right. saying? But, you know, my last story is like, you know, when I was in the league, you know, at the end of the game, like, you know, when, I, when you just think about the whole thing we go through. So we wake up from our nap, you know, we jump in the shower, you know, we blasting music, right? So we like just getting our, we getting our ego going, we getting our, our mojo going, you know, right out the shower, get ready for the game. So you get dressed, you know, check yourself out in the mirror, make sure you look good, you know what I'm saying? Now you right. leave the house, you jump in the car, you banging that music even louder. You just building, you building yourself up, you know what I'm saying? So you get to the arena, you know, you get dressed, you go get your shots up, you watch your film, you know, you bring it in, you get hyped before the game, go out and play. Now, when you go out there and you play, like, it's so many ranges of emotions we go through throughout the game, you know what I'm saying? You get into it with the guy you're playing against, your teammate, your coach, somebody tell you sucking suck in the crowd, you tell them they mother, you go through all this stuff. At right. the end of the game, like, you know, yeah, you're tired, but you're still revved up. Like, you like, what's next? You know what I'm saying? And what a lot of us do, most of us do, 90% of us do, we tell the ball boy, go get us a bottle of liquor. You know what I'm saying? So the ball boy go get us a bottle of Grey Goose, make our little Grey Goose and Cranberry right there on the side of our chair. And you know, by the time we left the locker room, we done had two Grey Goose and Cranberries. You know what I'm saying? Now we get on the bus. You know, we passing the Grey Goose around the bus. We drinking, we get on the plane, we drinking. So by the time we, you know, landed to the city we're going to, at the end of the day, we know that there's no benefits of alcohol. You know what I'm saying? If anything's on one, give us a hangover and one's gonna have us dehydrated. You know what I'm saying? Or let's, let's change it. 
let's just say you allow cannabis use and you actually do it smart. You know what I'm saying? Where you find out what levels players need and stuff like that to help bring them down. So now, instead of the trainer walking around giving you anti-inflammatories or Vicodin and different things like that, he's actually giving you an edible. You know, an edible that has 100 milligrams of CBD and 10% THC. You know what I'm saying? So now I'm sitting in my lock, I take that. By the time I get to the bus, I'm relaxed. You know what I'm saying? It puts me on the plane, I'm chilling, I get a great night's sleep. Which player you want to play the next night? Right. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like that, and that's real. Like which player? I rather have the player that use cannabis right. to right. get ready for the next day than the right. guy that's, you know, obviously dehydrated and can't be all that he can be. Right. You know what I'm saying? So like that's when people gotta really, you know, and, and I tell you all the time, like the, the players are like they're professional. Like we know it's like hunt or be hunted out there on the court. I'm not showing up to the game high to play against Zach Randolph. I'm right. not doing that. Right. You know what I'm right. saying? I'm right. not coming to play against Kobe High. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to do that. You know right. what I'm saying? I know I got to have all my shit with me to play against them. You know what I'm saying? So that whole perception that players are going to come to the game high and all that. And then if you do have that one guy, it's one out of 450 guys. You right. know what I'm saying? It, right. won't, it won't happen often. And I, I don't think it'll happen at all, to be honest, Absolutely. if they allowed it. Absolutely, man. Well, congratulations to you. I hope the business continues to grow and absolutely congrats on all your success in the league as well. And congrats to you also for a long NBA career. Uh, This is Al Harrington. You are watching the City to City podcast. I'm your host, Julian Mitchell, and we are out.